Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast, a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And as always, it's great to be with you today. It's interesting how stories come my way. Sometimes it's just historical subjects that have always interested me. Sometimes it's suggested by our listeners. Sometimes I'll find it in a footnote while researching another story. And sometimes it will just pop up in a conversation. The other day I was sitting on the back deck at my son's house for a family barbecue, and I overheard my daughter laughingly say, Nobody puts baby in a corner, which immediately triggered memories about the cult hit movie Dirty Dancing, which I know is one of her favorites, and I know she's not alone on that score. That movie's been affectionately called Star Wars for Women, and brought an entire generation of young women to the ballroom dance floor, as well as rocketing the careers of the late Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. I knew that two locations were used to film it, and one of them was here in Virginia. I knew that it was a smash hit, that there were stage productions that followed, and that ABC had tried to do a sequel just a few years ago, but some things just can't be duplicated. And I had questions. When was it made? How did the filming go? Whose idea was it? What made it a monster hit? I knew there was a story here, and thanks to my daughter, another 1001 story was born. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did getting all those questions and more answered in story form. Nobody puts baby in a corner. These were the words Johnny Castle spoke to Francis Baby Hausman's parents when he walked into the closing ceremonies at Kellerman's Resort and approached their table, asking for Baby's hand so they could perform the last dance of the evening. Baby's dad wasn't too happy about the offer. Her mother had to hold him back twice before the two left the table and headed for the stage, where the staff was singing the Kellerman's theme song to close out the evening. To say it was a tense moment would be an understatement. Johnny, the dance instructor, had just been fired. Baby's father was convinced that the working-class Johnny had gotten one of the dancers pregnant while at the same time professing love for his daughter. And Baby was crazy for Johnny. So they walk up to the stage, Johnny goes backstage, and Baby takes her place in the spotlight center stage. The song, I Had the Time of My Life, begins to play. Johnny, played by 34-year-old Patrick Swayze, and Baby, played by 25-year-old Jennifer Grey, begin to dance, and a movie legend is born. Filmed on location at two resorts, one in Virginia and one in North Carolina, Dirty Dancing is one of the great sleeper hits in film history a dance-filled love story that moviegoers took to heart almost immediately after its release in 1987. It's also been cited as the highest-grossing independent movie of all time. The movie is 34 years old, and the story and music date back to 1963, but Dirty Dancing has everything that makes great fiction, including class divides, a combination of great ballroom and backroom dancing, a schmaltzy but believable love story combining coming-of-age issues, teenage pregnancy, and abortion all dreamed up by Eleanor Bergstein, based on her teen experiences in the Borst Belt Resorts in New York's Catskill Mountains, one in particular being Grossinger's Catskill Resort. Experiences she took in as an outgoing teen while her parents played golf, leaving her lots of time for dancing. And dance she did, becoming the Mambo Queen at Grossinger's and competing in local dance contests. Her nickname, as you've already guessed, Baby. In 1966, she married Michael Goldman and worked as a novelist, her first effort being a book called Advancing Paul Newman, into which she worked many of the themes that later came to life in Dirty Dancing. She then jumped to screenwriting and had success with It's My Turn, 
a movie which starred Michael Douglas and Jill Clayburgh. The producers had cut an erotic love scene from that script, which she wanted to see come to life, and that was the spark that started her writing Dirty Dancing. In 1984, she pitched the idea to MGM executive Eileen Mizell, who liked it and teamed Bergstein with MGM East Coast producer Linda Gottlieb. In 1985, Eleanor had lunch with Gottlieb in New York City, and Gottlieb later recalled, I said, well, what's the story? And Bergstein answered, I don't really have a story, but it should involve Latin dancing. So Gottlieb switched the subject and said, tell me about yourself. And Bergstein answered, I grew up in Brooklyn. My father was a doctor. I was one of those kids who used to go across the tracks to go dirty dancing. Gottlieb was immediately drawn in. Now that's a million-dollar title, she said. Now we'll figure out the story. They invented the character Johnny Castle at that lunch meeting. Later they set the film in 1963 with the character of Baby based on Bergstein's own life and the character of Johnny based on the stories of Michael Terrace, a dance instructor whom Bergstein met in the Catskills in 1985 while she was researching for a story. The story she came up with told of an idealistic college-bound girl named Frances Baby Hausman, who goes to a Catskills summer resort with her family in 1963. She becomes romantically involved with the dance instructor, a working-class guy, who introduces her to dirty dancing. Johnny has a dance partner named Penny, who gets pregnant, courtesy of the member of the Ivy League waitstaff. Baby asks her dad for money for the abortion. He wants to wring Johnny's neck, thinking that Johnny probably got his dance partner pregnant, while at the same time professing love for his daughter. Johnny also gets accused wrongly of stealing by the vengeful wife of a wealthy resort customer. And the tension rises. Bergstein finished the script in November of 1985, but management changes at MGM put the script into turnaround or limbo. So Gottlieb started pitching the script, and it was rejected 43 times. And yes, she was counting. They were telling her, It's an historical film. It's small and soft. It's a girl's film. It's about Jews. One year later, a small independent named Vestron greenlighted her idea. The approved film was budgeted at the relatively low amount of $5 million at a time when the average cost for a film was $12 million. For choreographer, Bergstein chose Kenny Ortega, who had been trained by Gene Kelly. For a location, they didn't find anything suitable in the Catskills, as many of the Borst Belt resorts had been shut down at that point so they decided on a combination of two locations in right-to-work states where they used non-union extras, zeroing in on Lake Lure, North Carolina, and the Mountain Lake Hotel, now the Mountain Lake Lodge, near Prembrook, Virginia, and with careful editing, made it look like all the shooting was done in the same area. Miss Bergstein picked the two southern resorts instead of the Catskills because the movie had a tight budget, and filming in New York is an always expensive proposition. Both resorts claimed to be the place where important pieces of dirty dancing were filmed, the most memorable piece being the lift in the lake, when Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey, standing out in the lake, practiced a dance move that involved lifting Grey over his head. How many couples have injured each other trying to duplicate that move since 1987 is anyone's guess. Now is as good a time as any to separate fact from fancy as to which resort hosted the filming of that scene. Since the lake war is still waging between the two resorts, I can safely recommend that if you'd like to visit them, plan on a four-day weekend and spend two days at each. That's my, di that's my official disclaimer. Both resorts insist that their lake was the one used in the lake lift scene. We'll answer that in a minute or two. 
the two resorts, Mountain Lake Lodge, as it's called now in Virginia, and Lure Lake in North Carolina, are 235 miles apart. Kellerman's, the impressive stone building which gets so many shots in the movie, is actually Mountain Lake Lodge in southwest Virginia, about 60 miles west of Roanoke, way back on a little winding road near the little town of Pembroke. When the movie was filmed, in the summer and fall of 1986, Mountain Lake was a bustling resort, with a large assortment of cabins and other buildings. It still is, by the way, but that lake is now a grassy meadow. It's one of those mountain lakes that just appears over time from a seep, sticks around for years, and then disappears. A geological anomaly, they call it. It left in 2008, but you can still sit in the gazebo there, which they say was built by Virginia Tech students for the movie, and watch that lake bed when it's shrouded in the early morning fog, and just imagine that scene taking place. Right beside that gazebo is a stone memorial to Patrick Swayze, who died in 2009 of pancreatic cancer. The lift scene was filmed just off to your right as you're sitting there in what is now just a meadow. It's a quiet reminder that time passes and carries everything along with it. David Chapman, the production designer for the film, answered one curious reporter by showing him a storyboard labeled Baby Does a Lift in the Water, on which a doodle on the left side of the board shows the pier which was then at the Virginia Lake. Another tiny symbol shows the location of the camera, which is aimed at the spot where the actor stood on wooden platforms that had been sunk into the water and were held down with concrete blocks. Just a few years ago, and maybe still today, you could pick up a map at check-in that shows where all the movie scenes were shot. And the bartender then, whose name was Michael, could fill you in on those locations, as well as other staff who were there during the filming. Mountain Lake Lodge hosts dirty dancing three-day weekends every summer, featuring scavenger hunts, dance lessons, and more. The producers also picked Lake Lure, which was then an abandoned boys' camp called Camp Okanichi in North Carolina, because it offered a quieter setting for parts of the filming, where they wouldn't be upsetting the daily routines of the resort. Today, Lake Lure is a bustling resort that still embraces its connection with the movie, hosting a dirty dancing festival which includes lake lift competitions in August, along with watermelon-related events, dance parties, and a screening of the movie, courtesy of Lionsgate, which released a made-for-TV version on ABC in 2017. Simply said, you can't improve on perfection, which is what the 1987 film version was. As for Lake Lure, only a few places where scenes were shot still exist. A development of private homes called Firefly Cove now occupies the film site, and in the backyard of one are the remnants of the stone staircase where Baby practiced her dance steps. You'll need to take a boat tour of the lake to catch a look at it today. It's on private property. Much of the cast did stay at the Lake Lure Inn and Spa during the filming. Another inn just down the road boasts the dance floor that was used for the final scene. The dance scene was filmed in a gymnasium at the boys' camp, which burned down years later, but the floor was saved and passed on to that resort. About a mile down the road from there is the entrance to Chimney Rock State Park, where the last of the Mohegans was filmed. There are some breathtaking views to be had there from Exclamation Point. Now there's a great name for an overlook. Exclamation Point. We'll return with much more of the backstory to the movie Dirty Dancing right after these sponsor messages. And now back to Dirty Dancing, the true story behind the movie. As far as casting went, director Emile Ardolino was adamant that they choose dancers, such as Swayze, who could also act, as he did not want to use the stand-in method that had been used with Flashdance back in 1983. For the female lead of Francis Baby Hausman, 
Over 120 people were looked at, including Winona Ryder and Sarah Jessica Parker, for the role of Baby. Bergstein chose the 26-year-old Jennifer Grey, daughter of the Oscar-winning actor and dancer Joel Grey. The producers then sought a male lead, initially considering 20-year-old Billy Zane, though initial screen tests when he was partnered with Grey did not meet expectations. Val Kilmer and Benicio Del Toro were also considered for Johnny. The next choice was 34-year-old Patrick Swayze, who had co-starred with Gray on Red Dawn in 1984. He was a seasoned dancer with experience from the Joffrey Ballet. The producers were thrilled with him, but his resume read, No Dancing After a Knee Injury. However, Swayze read the script, liked the multi-level character of Johnny, and took the part anyway. His knee was in bad shape during the filming, but he toughed it out. In the script, Johnny Castle's heritage was changed from being Italian to Irish, figuring, I guess, that Irish boys could get into trouble just as quick as the Italian ones. Jennifer Grey, they say, was initially not happy about the choice, as she and Swayze had difficulty getting along in Red Dawn. But when they did their dancing screen test, the chemistry between them was obvious. Bergstein watched the screen test and described it as breathtaking. It was that match and the real-life tension between the two that makes the movie a classic. For instance, there's a scene in which Johnny and Baby are practicing the mambo for the big show, and Baby can't stop giggling. That scene wasn't planned. Gray was ticklish. The scene included a moment when Johnny, standing behind Baby, ran his hand lightly down Jennifer Gray's upheld arms. She started giggling uncontrollably. After 20 cuts, Swayze was getting visibly upset with her, and you can see that in the movie. That footage was found in the editing room, and the producers decided the scene worked as it was, and put it into the film, complete with Gray's giggling and Swayze's annoyed expression. It became one of the most famous scenes in the movie, turning out, as choreographer Kenny Ortega put it, as one of the most delicate and honest moments in the film. That scene has been used to hint that the two didn't get along, but most people who were involved said they had no problems. All you have to do is look at the final result. Did Swayze get frustrated at times with Gray's inexperience? Yes. Was his knee bothering him? Yes, greatly. But they were good friends during and after the filming, and that's where it stayed. Then there's another scene where the two are fooling around on the floor to Mickey and Sylvia's Love is Strange. That was all done off the cuff. It wasn't scripted. It wasn't rehearsed. They were just getting into character for the next scene. Anyone saying the two had no chemistry doesn't know what they're talking about. It was boiling over. And it's funny how iconic quotes happen. Swayze not only didn't like the name of the movie, Dirty Dancing, he didn't like the part where he had to approach Baby's table and say, nobody puts Baby in a corner. And he made it known he didn't like it. Too corny, he said. But the producers didn't back down. And after the screening, Swayze admitted, yeah, it worked. 34 years later, it still works. It's rated in the top 100 of all movie quotes, and it's been quoted in parodies by countless TV shows, movies, and music videos. Other casting choices were Broadway actor Jerry Orbach as Dr. Jay Kausman, Baby's father. Orbach, already known as a successful Broadway actor, continued afterwards in different genres. He was the voice of the candelabra, Lumiere, in the Disney animated film Beauty and the Beast, before taking on his best-known role, Detective Lenny Briscoe, in the TV crime drama Law and Order, which he played from 1992 until his death in 2004. And Jane Brucker as Lisa Hausman, Baby's older sister. Bergstein also attempted to cast her friend, sex therapist Dr. Ruth, to play Mrs. Schumacher, 
"'and Joel Gray as her husband. "'But Westheimer backed out "'when she learned the role involved being a thief. "'The role went instead to 89-year-old Paula Truman. "'Another role went to Bergstein's friend, "'New York radio personality "'you might remember from WABC Radio. "'She initially wanted him to portray the social director, "'but then later asked him to play the part of the magician. "'Morrow himself could be heard at different parts of the movie "'as a New York-area DJ. "'The role of the social director went to the then-unknown... Wayne Knight, who is best known for playing the mailman Newman on Seinfeld. Filming started for Dirty Dancing on September 5, 1986, and lasted a short 43 days. The production had to battle weather extremes, including outside temperatures of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. With the camera and lighting equipment needed for filming, the temperature inside got as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit. According to choreographer Kenny Ortega, Ten people passed out within 25 minutes of shooting in one day. Paula Truman collapsed and was taken to the local emergency room to be treated for dehydration. Patrick Swayze also required a hospital visit, insisting on doing his own stunts. He repeatedly fell off the log during the balancing scene and injured his knee so badly he had to have fluid drained from his swelling. Delays in the shooting schedule pushed filming into the autumn, which required the set decorators to spray paint the autumn leaves green in certain scenes. The weather became cold, causing the lake's temperatures to drop to near 40 degrees for the famous swimming scene, which was filmed in October. Despite her character's enjoyment, Jennifer Grey later described the water as horrifically cold, and she might not have gone into that lake except that she was, as she said it, young and hungry. The shooting wrapped on October 27, 1986, both on time and on budget. No one on the team, however, liked the rough cut that was put together. Investron executives were convinced that the film was going to be a flop. 39% of the people who viewed the film didn't realize abortion was the subplot. In May of 1987, the film was screened for producer Aaron Russo. According to Vestron executive Mitchell Canold, Russo's reaction at the end was to say simply, burn the negative and collect the insurance. Further disputes arose over whether a corporate sponsor could be found to promote the film. Marketers of the Clearasil acne product liked the film, seeing it as a vehicle to reach a teen target audience. However, when they learned the film contained an abortion scene, they asked for that part of the plot to be cut. As Bergstein refused, the Clearasil promotion was dropped. Consequently, Vestron promoted the film themselves and set the premiere on August 16, 1987. The Vestron executives had planned to release the film in theaters for a weekend and then home video, since Vestron had been in the video distribution business before they were in film production. The New York Times described the film as a metaphor for America in the summer of 1963, orderly, prosperous, bursting with good intentions, a sort of Yiddish-inflected Camelot. Other reviews were more mixed. Gene Siskel gave the film a marginal thumbs-up as he liked Jennifer Grey's acting and development of her character, while Roger Hebert gave it thumbs-down due to its idiot plot calling it a tired and relentlessly predictable story of love between kids from different backgrounds. Time magazine was lukewarm, saying, If the ending of Eleanor Bergstein's script is too neat and inspirational, the rough energy of the film's song and dance does carry one along, past the whispered doubts of better judgment. And this was surprising. The film drew adult audiences instead of the expected teens, with those viewers rating the film highly. Many filmgoers, after seeing the film once, went back into the theater to watch it a second time. Word-of-mouth promotion took the film to number one in the United States, 
and in 10 days it had broken the $10 million mark. By November of 87, it was also achieving international fame. Within seven months of its release, it had brought in $63 million in the U.S. and boosted attendance in dance classes across America. It became one of the highest-grossing films of 1987, earning $170 million worldwide. The film's popularity continued to grow after its initial release. It was the number one video rental of 1988 and became the first film to sell a million copies on video. When the film was re-released in 1997, ten years after its original release, Swayze received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and videos were still selling at the rate of over 40,000 a month. As of 2005, it was still selling a million DVDs per year, with over 10 million copies sold as of 2007. Lionsgate, who ended up getting the film after Vestron went bankrupt, had made a good investment. A May 2000 survey by Britain's Sky Movies listed Dirty Dancing as number one on women's most-watched films, above the Star Wars trilogy, Grease, The Sound of Music, and Pretty Woman. The film's popularity has also caused it to be called, as previously mentioned, The Star Wars for Girls. The film's music has also had a considerable impact. The closing song, I've Had the Time of My Life, has been listed as the third most popular song played at funerals in the UK. Dirty Dancing premiered at the 1987 Cannes Film Festival on May 12, 1987, and it was released on August 21, 1987, in the U.S., earning over $214 million worldwide, and its soundtrack, created by Jimmy Leonard, generated two multi-platinum albums and multiple singles, including I've Had the Time of My Life, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Song, the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, and the Grammy Award for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group of Vocals. The film's popularity led to a 2004 prequel, Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights, and a stage version which has had sellout performances in Australia, Europe, and North America. A made-for-TV remake was also released in 2017 to not-so-hot reviews, proving that some things just can't be duplicated. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And stay tuned for next week's story about Dodge City in 1878 and the greatest posse that ever took to the trail when Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Bill Tillman, and Charlie Bassett tracked down the killer of singer Dora Hand. And be sure to catch our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're now doing the classic Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where we just started The Scarlet Pimpernel, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, where you H.P. Lovecraft fans will find a lot of good short stories, 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we house all our interviews, and 1001 Radio Days, where you'll find the best from old-time radio. Please share our show with others, and stop a moment if you can, and send us a review, or email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. That's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. By the way, 1001 listeners, I wanted you to know, in case you wondered where the Kellerman's theme song comes from, it's actually called the Annie Lyle theme, L-I-S-L-E, the Annie Lyle theme, which was written by a man named H.S. Thompson back in 1884, and the earliest copy known of it is a 1924 copy by the Shannon Quartet. And I've got that for you here.
Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.